I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. to Unheard, I'm Florence Reed. Ask someone what they want from life and chances are you'll get one simple answer. I want to be happy. Well, good news. The architecture of modern life appears to be perfectly designed to maximise happiness. You have the freedom to gorge on a happy meal or find a romance novel in a bookshop with a very happy ending. And yet so-called deaths of despair have reached historic levels this year. The US and UK are sinking in the World Happiness Report rankings and there seems to be a prevailing mood of despair and ennui far from the eudaimonia or human flourishing that the ancient Greeks might have hoped for the human race. Western citizens are not happy customers. In fact, customer satisfaction seems to be at an all-time low. So has the West been sold a pup when it comes to happiness? Joining us live from Quebec is Dr. Gad Saad. Quebec, I should note, is a euthanasia hotspot, but Gad is a very happy man. We've had him on three years ago, and now he is back. He's an evolutionary behavioral scientist, the best-selling author of many books, and most recently of The Sad Truth About Happiness, a brilliant book that I had the pleasure to read this week. He joins me live from Canada now. Welcome, Dr. Saad. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Flo. Thank you for having me back. Well, I suppose I'm going to treat you a little bit like a medical doctor here, and I'd like to start by getting a diagnosis from you. We can talk about the prescription in a second, but let's talk diagnosis first. Why is it that in a world that seems so driven towards optimal happiness for everyone, that so many people seem still so unhappy? So I briefly discussed this in the in, in my current book on happiness, where I discuss a evolutionary principle known as the mismatch hypothesis. So before I, I link it to happiness, let me describe it in a slightly different context. So for example, your gustatory preferences and mine have evolved to prefer fatty food, you know, high calorically dense foods, because we've evolved in an environment of caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty. In the modern environment, though, where we have a plentitude of food, where caloric uncertainty and caloric uh, scarcity don't necessarily hold, then that which was adaptive in our ancestral past becomes maladaptive today, and hence the mismatch hypothesis. Well, the exact same thing applies for our state of well-being and our happiness. We've evolved, for example, to be in small bands of intimate groups of 150 people where everybody knows one another, where you can develop these tight, strong social relationships that give us the kind of emotional well-being that we expect. And yet that's not the contemporary environment that we are. most of us live in, in the urban jungle, right? I could be surrounded by 8 million people and yet feel very lonely. So I think because of the general mechanisms associated with the mismatch hypothesis, many of us find ourselves in a less than happy state. So is decadence to blame here? Have we got too much and we're kind of poisoning ourselves with modern society? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think uh, the decadence argument applies to uh, many phenomena. So for example, the fact that the West now decided that 
the best way to ascend the social hierarchy is to be a victim. And if you're not a victim, then you construct a faux victimhood narrative uh, itself, in a sense, is a form of existential decadence. Because if you don't have anything to complain about, if really you, you can wake up every day and not worry that someone is going to execute you, uh, then you end up constructing uh, narrat narratives of victimhood. Uh, you know, I was misgendered in my Oberlin College class today. I'm a victim. Well, as someone, of course, some of your viewers know, as someone who went through the Lebanese Civil War, it frustrates me infinitely to see the kind of victimhood narrative that we currently see in the West. Uh, instead of appreciating all that we have in the West, most people wish to self-flagellate and whine. That's not a pathway to happiness. I suppose we have to distinguish two types of happiness there then as well, which is a kind of eudaimonia, as I mentioned in the introduction, an idea of self-fulfillment or satisfaction, which includes hard work and perseverance. And then this other hedonistic kind of happiness that can come from more, more immediate pleasures, the kind of worldly pleasures like food and sex and money. And I suppose currently the culture we're in does seem to push us towards making more hedonistic decisions. Yeah, and, and that's a, a, a beautiful distinction between sort of short-term dopamine hits, right? I may buy the Ferrari and it may make me feel, quote, happy, but that's a really ephemeral, it's a, it's a fleeting moment, right? Or I can buy the stiletto shoes if, I'm, if I collect stilettos, or I can eat the juicy burgers. But exactly to your point, that's not what I mean in the book by existential happiness. Uh, for that, you have to kind of refer to the long-term serotonin system, right? The, it's sort of the proverbial sitting uh, on your porch when you're 85, looking at your spouse and saying, look, we've had a great marriage. We've raised great kids. I've had a profession that has given me great purpose and meaning. So it's in that sense that I'm defining happiness. So let's turn then to some of the, your remedies. You mentioned a few there, um, one of which is kind of family and marriage and the family unit and the other being work and, and fulfillment within your job. Perhaps let's start with work, because that's what we're doing right now. Both of us are doing, I suppose, quite a nice job, all things considered, which is being able to sit and talk to each other. But for most people, jobs are not something to be enjoyed. Jobs are something to be endured. But I suppose the question here is, even in those intellectually stimulating jobs, even the most interesting and most eudaimonically rewarding positions, like that of the philosopher, the academic, there does seem to be this bloat in middle management that has reduced it to a kind of bureaucratic function. Many academics now effectively are form fillers. They are hardly even teachers. They spend most of their time applying for grants that they'll never get because they cannot fulfill the required DEI information. It does seem that even the most enticing roles in society, those which previously would have been considered those of highest possible virtue and maximizing of happiness, have actually been reduced to effectively office work. Bureaucracies is exactly where, you know, ideas and creativity go to die. If I have to spend six months going uh, through an institutional review board to get ethical clearance to run a study because it has become so onerous uh, to actually get ethical clearance, then I'm going to think twice about running that study because I'm going to be spending I mean, in many cases, Flo, I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic, you know, you'll end up spending many, many months of back and forth uh, before they grant you that ethical clearance. So everything becomes difficult. Now you have to enter, you have to fill out a diversity, inclusion and equity statement whenever you're applying for a scientific grant. How are you going to advance, you know, indigenous, transgender people of color's goals? 
Well, I'm not, right? I don't design my scientific uh, studies based on advancing a particular marginalized group. And so I've literally taken the decision over the past few years of not applying for certain grants because I simply couldn't go through the process of being inauthentic and in filling out those diversity equity statements, which I disagree with. So yes, it's become a bane of my existence to go through some of the pencil pushing tasks of academia. Your next point uh, for a kind of ideal life, a good life, is is about family and marriage, which of course is, is, is a massive one. It's something philosophers have written about for thousands of years, the importance of, of family and of love. It used to be that the differences between men and women were appreciated and understood within the context of a functioning and optimally healthy and happy marriage. That doesn't seem to be a distinction we make anymore. We treat men and women as effectively equal in all senses and are in general in denial that there might be any inherent evolutionary or biological differences between them. So how has that affected the way in which marriage and happiness intertwine? Well, that's that's right up my wheelhouse in terms of evolutionary psychology, right? I mean, one of the things that evolutionary psychologists have been, you know, very adept at doing is arguing that there are recurring universal invariant sex differences and these sex differences are rooted in sexual dimorphisms, right? There are many things on which men and women are indistinguishable from each other, but then there are other things that we are distinguishable from each other precisely because we've faced different evolutionary pressures in our ancestral past. When it comes to, for example, mating, men and women don't have indistinguishable motives, right? That which might be optimal from a genetic perspective to a man's interest does not necessarily uh, accord with that of women. So militant feminism, for example, which is or certainly second wave feminism, which is a idea pathogen that I discussed in my previous book in the parasitic mind has caused, you know, a lot of detriment to to women's uh, happiness, because if women are told, hey, ladies, burn your, you know, metaphorical bras, anything that a man can do, you can do as well. Well, of course, in a in a legal sense, of course, that's true, right? Men and women should be equal under the law. That doesn't mean that meaningless one night stands will be equally beneficial to both men and women. Yes, both men and women desire sexual variety. That is part of our makeup for both sexes. But the penchant for that variety is not the same for men and women. And so when women were told, go out there and have a million meaningless one night stands, guess what? Many women woke up after those one night stands and said, you know, I don't feel very fulfilled. So ideas matter, downstream consequences of those ideas matter. And so it's not difficult to see why maybe men and women, longitudinally speaking, over the past 40 years, don't have the same curve of happiness. Is there not an argument to follow on from what you're saying, that we should in fact disincentivize them from doing that if it, if it makes them miserable in the long term? Is there not a kind of paternalistic, you might say, argument to tell women, look, this is not going to make you happy and actually re-incentivize things like motherhood, which you write about as having some of the best happiness outcomes for women across the spectrum? I think, yes, we can give people advice to use the old cliche, knowledge is power. I don't know if it's for the government to help me do that. Although I should mention, and I, I don't think I've publicly stated this, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on going to Hungary to speak at a demographic family summit uh, in a couple of weeks. It's not yet finalized, but I'm, I'm hoping to. And as you probably know, Hungary has a, to your point about the government intervening, Hungary has a very interesting uh, 
taxation policy whereby depending on the number of children you have in your marriage your tax burden becomes lesser and we're not talking here about you know 450 dollars a child it's i don't know the exact details but it's something in the order i hope i'm not misspeaking you know if you have four children you don't pay income tax or something something as drastic as that precisely because they recognize that the replacement rates the fertility rates which i think is 2.17 most western countries have failed at Hungary recognizes that, and so in that case, the government is intervening to uh, to in, you know implore people to pursue their reproductive interests. Sociopolitical and economic systems work well as long as they are congruent with human nature. Once they are not congruent with human nature, then it results in problems. That's why communism has been tried in a million different places and it has always failed. Of course, the communists will tell you, oh, but it wasn't true communism. If only we implement the real communism, then we'd all be happy and, and you know living in unicornia. And so to your point, I think that there are ways for governments to try to uh, you know, nudge us towards some things that are congruent with our human nature. So in in, in the abstract, I think it's possible. But again, I would, uh, uh, you know, ask people to be careful in supporting such things because I truly believe that less government intervenes in my life, the happier I am. One of the things that I love about evolutionary psychology is that there are, you know, steadfast universal laws, human universals, that, that, that makes it actually a very, very precise science, right? There is no sing singular culture that's ever been devised where men don't place a greater premium on prospective mates is beauty, right, than the other way around. There is no culture where men say, I really am attracted to postmenopausal uh, obese women, that's what and there is no culture where women have said, here's what I'm looking for, a pear-shaped man with a nasal voice who's unemployed and shows no ambition or assertiveness, that will turn me into a sexual frenzy. Uh, so there are absolute universals that we can take to the bank. That's what makes evolutionary psychology so beautiful and powerful. I'd like to talk to you a bit more about beauty and aesthetics, because you touch on them in the book, but we, ha we haven't kind of gone into them particularly. Something that really interests me is the, the decline in an appreciation for, for beauty and the idea of beauty as a, as a virtue in and of itself, and perhaps as a kind of social good and, and eventually something that could give a rise to happiness. Um, you, when you see a beautiful building, for example, when you go to Italy, you, you feel happiness, you know that that gives you some sort of good feeling, and it seems pretty universal because tourists keep on flocking to the ancient sites in Rome and Athens and wherever else. So we know for a fact that those beautiful ancient things bring us some sort of eudaimonia or satisfaction. Tell me why you think beauty has gone so out of fashion. <laughs> so I'll, I'll mention a couple of, I'll take a couple of threads from your uh, uh, question. Number one, uh, to your point about appreciating great architecture, there is actually a field called biophilic architecture. The term biophilia is a term that was introduced by E.O. Wilson that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Biophilia refers to innate love of nature. And so you can design buildings, you can design, design urban spaces or even interior spaces that trigger our biophilic instinct. So it doesn't take much of an evolutionary psychologist to recognize that all other things uh, equal, having a room uh, with a window is going to make you happier uh, than one where everything is closed off, where you have no access to nature. So that's that's 
point one. Point two, to your point about going to museums and appreciating art, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow on a trip to New York City. And one of the first things that I want to do when I get there is visit the new gallery where there are some incredible Klimt uh, paintings that I'm so desperate to see in person because, as oh, you said, I, I absolutely adore Klimt. I'm going all the way to Vienna just to see the Kiss very soon. Oh my God! There you go. <laughs> well, I don't. You're right that the Kiss is not in the New York one, but no, the it's the one you can't of, see. It's the one you can't exactly. see. Next time, the, Vienna. The portrait of Adele Blach Bauer is the one that I'm going to hopefully be able to see in person. But to your uh, bigger question, which is why. Are some young people not appreciating some of these uh, metrics of aesthetics and beauty? So here I'm going to refer to the granddaddy of all idea pathogens that I discussed in the previous book, in The Parasitic Mind, which is postmodernism, right? Postmodernism says there are no universal standards. There are no universal truths, right? I could just start making random noises, and that itself is a musical piece, right? I, I went to the museum... Uh, the Carnegie Museum, and I think it was 1996, uh, I was visiting a friend who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, and I saw an empty canvas as one of the the painting, the paintings. And of course, I understood what that was, but I was so uh, galled by that kind of postmodernist stupidity that I demanded to see the curator. They sent, the curator wasn't available, they sent this other person, I said, what is this? I, I paid a lot of money to see beautiful art, why do you have an empty canvas? And then of course her answer is, well, you see, it created a conversation between us, that's what art does. No, an empty canvas is not art, there are standards of beauty, there are universal standards of what most people view as aesthetically pleasing, and the, quick, the quicker we get rid of postmodernism, the happier we'll be, and the the quicker we'll be able to appreciate those invariant standards of beauty. To begrudgingly uh, defend the postmodernists for a moment, I suppose within the context of a gallery, what you'd hope for would be that painting or lack of painting, that void, to sit within a history of art that understands the past, present, future. And so it would be within a lineage. And that's what it used to be, that artists and uh, art lovers would understand the whole history of art that came to minimalism and then to postmodernism. Whereas now it feels that you are walking into a gallery and there is only one painting and it is the void canvas. It is, uh, <laughs> it is, it is blank and there is no history. Our desire to kind of kill off history must have a part to play in this. Uh, right. I mean, look, uh, all totalitarian uh, ideologies, one of the things that they do is when they come in, they seek to erase history because history should start when they came in. So think, for example, in Islamic traditions, right? Anything that was before Islam was was literally the Dark Ages, and then Islam came along to illuminate the world. Well, that applies to many other ideologies, right? Because many of these ideologies have the exact same templates. I mean, the song and dance may change, but the reflex to erase all that existed before I came along, the savior, is exactly what we see. That's, by the way, one of the reasons why I think that progressive. So I, I very briefly in the book talk about the fact that there is a lot of uh, research that shows that on average, conservatives tend to be uh, happier than liberals and progressives. And I argue speculatively, but I think it's a, it's a feasible explanation that the reason for that is because 
the progressive wakes up in the morning and they're existentially unhappy because the current status, the status quo is not a good one. I need to change that just around the corner. If I can implement some changes, there'll be unicornia. The utopia will exist and I need to quickly change that which exists today. Whereas the conservative by definition, recognizes that there are certain foundational values that are worthy of conserving. And so if only that, that might explain why conservatives on average are a bit happier than progressives. To extend that theory a little, perhaps there's also a case for the idea that the progressive mind says that it is taboo to say that one is truly happy because to say that would be to accept the suffering of others. It would be to say, <laughs> I, I am happy at the cost of others, which is, of course, the kind of progressive mantra that my happiness or eudaimonia comes at such a, a, a terrible cost. It's the Robin DiAngelo white fragility theory. So I suppose there's that there as well, this kind of guilt, um, which many progressives carry around with them for feeling happy about one's own life. Indeed. I'll give you a very banal but poignant example of what you just described. So uh, I just returned from a three-week part of my media tour to to promote and discuss the book. I was in in both in Northern and Southern California. And at one point I posted, you know, a photo of, you know, here's my current view. And I show a picture of the beach, you know, right. Uh, And someone writes, "Do, do you think that that's sensitive for you to do that? What in light of what's happening currently in Maui. So, okay, so Maui exists on a coastline. I'm on a coastline. I'm not self-flagellating in somehow guilt by proxy. And again, I'm not belittling what the tragedy of what happened in Maui, but in any moment of any day throughout all of human history, as you're experiencing joy, someone else is experiencing misery. And therefore, if that's the measure by which I should navigate through life, I should just put a bullet in my head today, but that gives you again a sense of the orgiastic whining and negativity that comes with being super progressive. Well, and we've heard the origins of this for many, many decades because it used to be the phrase, eat your dinner, there are children starving in Africa. That was what parents used to say to their children. I mean, it it kind of goes hand in hand perfectly that not only do you feel the rush of guilt, but also you were then force-feeding yourself your kind of diabetic dinner, um, your incredibly decadent meal that you in the West are are allowed to have um, because of your great white guilt. So there is this kind of question here about whose fault it is that we've come to this point, but perhaps we'll we'll get onto that as well. I kind of wanted to continue through your your points here when it comes to living a good life and speak a bit about community. You write about Dunbar's number, which is a really interesting theory about the kind of optimal number of relationships that any one person can have in their life. Could you just tell me, explain to our audience what, what that theory is? Yeah, so that's Robin Dunbar, who actually is a professor. uh, I think he's currently at Oxford. He's an evolutionary uh, anthropologist. And Dunbar's number refers to this kind of mystical 150 people. The idea being that there is a computational limit to the number of people I can maintain meaningful relationships with and with whom I... for whom I could tag as trustworthy or not for, say, reciprocal arrangements. Once you go beyond that magical number of 150, it becomes difficult for your brain and mind to keep track of all this. And he, through some very clever studies, both he and others have found in many different settings that 150 seems to be the optimal number, which, by the way, speaks to what I mentioned earlier when I talked about the mismatch hypothesis. If 150 is the maximal number of people with whom I can you know, interact, now you 
put us in an urban jungle where there are 8 million people. Again, there are tons of people around me, but they're not sufficiently intimate with me. So I could feel very alone amongst the sea of 8 million strangers. And so, uh, by the way, I, I, I very uh, quickly tested that idea of Dunbar's number by looking at what is the average number of people that are invited to a wedding. And I think it was unbelievably close to that number. I think it was like maybe 148. I can't remember the exact number. So Dunbar's number is real and uh, it definitely describes the kind of social ecosystem that is congruent with human nature. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Though I suspect in that wedding analogy, it might be that there's 149 for the bride and then one kind of sole male friend for the groom, which often does seem to be the case in those situations. The other kind of grouping that you find that has around 150 people is a church congregation. You haven't spoken that much about um, churches in the book or, or the idea of re a religious life as one that could actually offer many of these organizational factors that you speak about for maintaining happiness. But it does seem that the loss of church attendance um, has gone hand in hand with the increase in despair and, and misery and isolation that we see in our current society. Do you have any thoughts about that? Do you think revisiting of religion might be something that needs to happen to kind of retain this Dunbar ideal of, of, of a community? For the people who are in the in our audience right now who are religious, you, you'll be happy to hear that there is a moderate positive correlation between religiosity and happiness, meaning that the more religious I am, all other things equal, the happier I'll be. Now, there might be very 
earth, not there might be, there are very earthly reasons for why that holds true, even if I remove the supernatural element. To, to, uh, to your point about, you know, communality, being in a religious, in a, in a, in, in a, in a faith-based group grants me greater communality, creates greater uh, social cohesion. It creates a clear demarcation between the in-group and out-group. So there are very real earthly reasons, non-supernatural reasons, why simply belonging to a common faith grants me some of that uh, sense of, you know, meaning and happiness. And so, uh, but that said, by the way, I should mention that right after I discuss this, I, I want to make, I want to grant some solace to the people who may be irreligious, and I argue that there are ways by which I can still see the majesty of life and, you know, in find spiritual awe-inspiring experiences, even if I'm not rooted within a religion. This conversation is a spiritual experience. We're engaging in an intellectual tango. When I see the beauty of nature, it fills me with awe, even though I don't need to, you know, root that experience within a, you know, supernatural narrative. It's not to say that secular tribalism is more or less dangerous than any other form of tribalism, particularly religious tribalism, which is obviously comes with its own pitfalls. But religious tribalism, at least, comes with undergirding of moral tenets that must be followed to remain in the in-group, whereas secular tribalism can be more based on an enemy hypothesis, the idea that you have to stay in and keep others out. And that, to me, I suppose, speaks to the moment we're in right now, the moment we've had when it comes to COVID. Black Lives Matter was another example, where very quickly secular groups became in-groups and decided that the out-group was worth shunning completely. I should just, if, if I may respectfully, respectfully push back against the idea that it's the secular or atheist folks that are engaging in tribalism, I emigrated to Canada from Lebanon because it was religious groups that were seeking to disassociate my head from the rest of my body. Uh, so it's not as though religious folks can't engage in, uh, you know, very violent tribalism. So uh, I think the reality is that tribalism is an innate part of, of the architecture of the human mind, viewing the world as per Dunbar, as us 150 and the rest of the world being them, they, is, is, is an inherent part of whether you are an atheist or whether you're, you know, uh, very religious, we see the world as blue team versus red team. And so I think uh, that's, you know, it, it's not religiosity or lack thereof that's going to make us more or less tribal. I've known many, many religious people who are incredibly tribal or not, and I've known atheists who are incredibly tribal or not, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, it does. But I suppose my question here then to dig a little deeper is about the nature of tribalism and, and how exactly it makes us happier. Because it's, it's a difficult thing to get your head around because we've all been raised in these Western societies, at least, to understand that diversity is our strength, that the more yes. diverse the community, the more benefit value that the individual gets from it. But I suppose right. this tribalism idea or an idea of religiosity maximizing the potential for happiness flies in the face of that. 
Well, well, one of the things that has made at least some religions uh, very, very powerful in their ability to spread is that take, for example, Islam. Islam is now, you know, I think 1.4, 1.5 billion of, of, of humanity, which is, you know, a, a pretty successful in, in 1400 years. One fifth of all people consider the, the, them, themselves to be Muslim. Now, what that has done is it has the, the cue of appartenance, of belongingness, is that we share the same faith. We can be of completely different races, different ethnicities, different countries, but as long as we are all Muslim, we are part of the ummah, we become part of that one tribe. So I think one of the, and of course this is not exclusive to Islam, certainly the Abrahamic religions all have that blue team, red team, uh, you know, breakdown. So, so tribal, so what religion has done really well is it, it's taken these evolved neuronal compute, computational systems that already exist in our brain, us versus them, and it has piggybacked on them for the services of the religious memoplex. The implications though could be, if you were, perhaps this is an uncharitable view, that things like immigration, mass immigration, and lack of social cohesion between groups of immigrants and native populations is bad for overall happiness. If we were thinking right. in terms of policy, you know, you might say that the reason why many of the countries at the top of the happiness rankings are these kind of Scandinavian countries where it does seem to be that the community is incredibly split, tribal, between the kind of white natives in Finland or Norway and the, as we see in the news every day, immigrants who are effectively ghettoized, does that actually increase happiness in places like that? So from the research that I've seen, when you increase the, the, the diverse group within a society, it usually leads to more strife, right? So, I mean, when you talk about sectarianism, you, you look to Lebanon. You, now, in, the, in the, the Lebanese case, it's not so much our skin you that makes us of different sects. It's what religious group that you belong to, right? I mean, as a matter of fact, in the context of Lebanon, uh, you know, the parliament is decided how many how many seats you get depends on your religion, whether you are prime minister or president depends on your religion. Rwanda also had sectarianism. Uh, you know, the Balkan s s s uh, states had the same thing, Iraq, Syria. So what you would need to do there is have a set of universal principles that we would all band around that transcend our skin you and our uh, religions and so on. Of course, it's difficult to do that. That's why you often get people, immigrants that come into a new society and they can't assimilate because even if though they might be the same skin you as you, if they don't share those deontological foundational values on which the host society is built, you're going to have strife. And I suppose we have a hangover in many Western societies of a Christian tradition that people deny exists, but then becomes very obvious when it butts up against different religious traditions entering it. So we kind of are seeing the effects of what it means to live in a kind of post-Christian world claiming to be secular, when in fact, our whole societies are based on very Christian values. And then once we see them in conflict with alternative sets of deontological values, everything becomes very murky because we want to claim that we are these open, diverse, secular nations. Canada is a very good example of one. But yet it does seem that under it all, there are values that are just fundamentally different and they actually do interrupt the kind of flow of happiness between those two groups. Exactly. And so here I'll, I'll mention a, a concept from 
evolutionary psychology. So in evolutionary psychology, we have this concept of assortative mating. The idea being that birds of a feather flock together. It's something that I discuss when I talk about how to choose the the optimal, uh, you know, the, the best spouse possible. Now, birds of a feather flocking on which feathers? It's on shared values, shared belief systems. So if I am highly religious, it's probably not a good idea for me to marry a caustic atheist, right? It doesn't take a fancy evolutionary psychologist to recognize that. Now let's apply that to the cultural context. Well, a similar form of assortative mechanism is at play. This is called cultural homophily, right? Being being attracted to things that are similar to you. Well, again, it doesn't take much of a fancy academic to recognize that if you if your society is based on a set of really inviolable deontological principles, and then you allow entry to millions of people who don't share that cultural compass, you're going to have trouble. That doesn't make you racist. It doesn't make you a bigot. It makes you someone who has a functioning brain. It is considered, though, racist, bigoted, prejudiced to suggest that one has more in common with one somebody has a, a cultural heritage with or a shared national history. That is genuinely considered by many people as something beyond the pale. You cannot actually speak those words in public. I recently made a joke on the Joe Rogan podcast about the auditorily unattractiveness of the French Canadian accent. I, we were just joking around and I said, oh, my family and I just returned from Portugal. Oh, you know, I'm not really a fan of the Portuguese accent. And oh, by the way, I, one of the languages I speak is Hebrew. Hebrew is violently ugly, my, my exact words. And then I said, oh, but when it comes to the French Canadian accent, well, that's an affront to human dignity. <laughs> And, and there, right, you laugh because it's meant to be hyperbolic humor. Well, the Quebec media and some super highfalutin progressive Quebec separatists and nationalists uh, took that as an attack on their identity and spent the next two, three weeks only talking about the ingrate immigrant that we've allowed into our society from the hellhole that he's come from. And now he backstabs us by going on the number one show in the world and making fun of us. And they just spent two weeks writing, you know, articles and media and television. You've got nothing better to do than to spend two weeks talking about an innocent, flippant joke. But that gives you a sense of that orgiastic victimology that people have succumbed to. It seems that diversity was no longer Quebec's strength when it came to Gadsad at that point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. As a matter of fact, short of breathing, eating, uh, you know, drinking, the desire for sex, play is an indelible part of our human nature. It should be something that we immerse ourselves to our, to our dying days. As a matter of fact, science itself, I argue, and others have argued, is a, a highbrow form of play. Because what do I do as a scientist? There's a bunch of variables out there and I'm trying to solve the puzzle of which variable correlates or is causal in a meaningful way with some other variable. Well, that's puzzle making, right? And so even as I approach my academic career on a day-to-day -day basis, I am akin to a child. I'm excited because I'm going to engage in this intellectual play. Even when I went through the Lebanese Civil War flow, my deep desire of play was so great that I remember, and I mentioned this briefly in the book, that when I would go out during the brutality of the Lebanese Civil War to play outside, my parents would tell me, don't, don't cross this particular imaginary line because that would open you up to the eyesight, to the scope of the snipers who will then blow your head. So even in such a brutal environment, 
both myself and my parents realized that we were children and we needed to play. That also makes me think that perhaps the safetyism of our current Western societal makeup is something that's holding us back from true eudaimonia. Yeah. And indeed, may- maybe I could make a quick segue to another chapter in the book where I talk about what Aristotle had, had told us you know, 2,000 years ago, you know, everything in moderation. So I have a whole chapter where I demonstrate how powerful that concept is by demonstrating that the inverted you meaning too little of something is not good, too much of something is not good, and life becomes nothing more than finding the sweet spot across many different domains. Well, that applies to safety and security, right? If you are completely reckless in your life, well, that's probably not good. But if you are so bound by reducing every risk to zero, well, you better just go in a coffin in a hazmat suit and hopefully, you know, nobody will mug you and and a truck won't hit you. So as in most things in life, somewhere between excessive risk taking and, uh, you know, complete cowardice is the optimal point. And by the way, Aristotle had mentioned this in the context of a soldier where he said that, you know, a soldier who is cowardly is not exhibiting good attributes. A soldier who is reckless in his courage is going to die quickly. Somewhere in the middle is the optimal point, and that exactly applies to how we parent our children. At the very top of the world rankings for happiness, just so happened in the last few years to be the Scandinavian Nordic countries that had the least harsh kind of COVID measures, lockdowns, masking, social distancing, that sort of thing, and therefore probably the least amount of kind of latent public fear is there a part to play here about the amount of anxiety that the average citizen has that accumulates and actually ends in a kind of misery? So stress, for example, the stress, the optimal stress that you experience in your life follows an inverted U-shape. This is Robert Sapolsky, the, the neuroanatomist out of Stanford. He, he wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, where he was basically arguing that, you know, zebras don't sit around in an existential crisis going, why do I live in an environment where I could be eaten at any moment? They basically go about happily grazing. If the predator comes after them, they instantiate the flight mechanism. If they're caught, well, too bad, you're dead. And if you don't get caught, you get to live another day. Whereas, of course, humans, because of this big prefrontal cortex, we're both haunted by our past and worried about our future. Well, he argued that the stress response, the optimal stress response follows a inverted U. If you're never stressed, if you're never anxious, you're not going to do well in the next exam because you probably didn't worry enough to study for it. If you're so stressed that you enter into a, a panic state because you're going to do the exam, you're probably going to fail your calculus exam. So some intermediate level of stress is optimal. So I, I'm, I'm almost willing to bet that that inverted U applies to COVID responses globally. Probably some medium point is the optimal one. And when it comes to excess deaths, we've seen in those same Scandinavian countries that they're significantly lower than they are in the West, even though you would expect, given how many precautions were put in place, that the West ought to have far lower excess deaths. In fact, it's not true. And you write in the book about how happiness and health go hand in hand, physical health, not just mental health. And perhaps there is a lesson there about the prioritizing of the physical over the mental and the way in which actually they're not so distinct at all. Indeed. Listen, uh, I, lo- I lost a tremendous amount of weight. Uh, I mean, it started before COVID, but then I used the, the COVID lockdowns to actually turn it into a positive. So I, uh, because I couldn't go to many restaurants, and hence I couldn't instantiate my variety seeking, my food variety seeking, uh, I used 
that you know dreadful time to uh, you know exercise a lot more. My wife was controlling all of my food intake. That's a that's a good make- decision. Full stop. I'd say if anyone wants happiness, then maybe succeeding <laughs> all control over to their wife is a good start. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, and so that allowed me to lose a tremendous amount of weight. So to your point about the relationship between health and happiness, well, guess what? Losing a tremendous amount of weight has knock on wood, probably added many years to my life, hopefully many happy years. And so, yes, all other things equal, there's kind of a feedback loop between health and happiness. Uh, Happier people tend to engage in more healthy behaviors. And then uh, by being happy, it reduces, for example, your inflammation markers, it reduces your cortisol levels. So there's this kind of orgiastic feedback loop between health and happiness. In a tyrannical Dr. Gadsad society where you have total control over the flow of commerce and the legislation. What are the, the laws that you would put in place that would make people happier? Or, or is it that actually full libertarian freedom is the answer? I, I recently took a trip to San Francisco with Freddie. We've actually just returned and we spent time in the Tenderloin area there, which is certainly a haven for people who want to have full liberty to uh, make themselves happy or destroy themselves um, at any cost. And really, there is total freedom. But what we saw there was certainly not joy and eudaimonia. It seemed to be total depravity and depression. So seeing the effects of complete libertarianism, would you put in place any laws or rules if you were in charge that would seek to maintain or, or maximize happiness for people? Well, of course, I would ban all Beatles music and I would ban (laughs) any public uh, adulation of Cristiano Ronaldo. That's just that's the starting point. (laughs) Right. So once you've quelled two revolutions, how would you go about the next stage? (laughs) You know, the the one that you raise about, uh, you know, uh, a libertarian approach to drug use is is one that sort of challenges my libertarian ethos, because you're right that, you know, in a strict libertarian sense, allowing people to do whatever they want can result in, uh, you know, in, in very uh, deleterious downstream effects. But then if if we take that argument when, uh, I think it was Bloomberg, when he was instituting a tax on uh, soda drinking because that increases obesity and so on, you know, it's the proverbial slippery slope. So I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what would be, what Emperor Sad would do to make the society uh, healthier. What I would certainly do is always defend the absolute inviolable freedom of speech tenet. I mean, others have said it. I've said it in the parasitic mind. Uh, I am an absolute absolutist when it comes to freedom of speech. Why is it that we're so attracted to hedonism over eudaimonia? It seems so obvious that a kind of eudaimonic existence would be one that would end in maximum satisfaction. And that's what we all want in the end. I said at the beginning, most people say they just want a happy life. Why is it then that we're so attracted to the things that give us short-term pleasure, but perhaps long-term pain? I mean, I would argue that that's probably due to the uh, psychological trait related to immediate versus postponed gratification, right? So uh, immediate gratification is what causes most consumers to not have a penny to their name upon retiring, right? Because I want it now. I'm never willing to hold off to a rainy day. And as I mentioned earlier, Uh, The dopamine uh, system is all about immediate pleasures. I eat the juicy burger. I am immediately, quote, happy. I watch the sexy pornography. I'm immediately titillated. I buy the Maserati. 
I'm immediately happy. When we're talking about this kind of existential sense of happiness, we're talking about long term. We're talking about, you know, serotonin, if we're going to use that that framework. And so uh, if we can teach people, if to the extent that it's possible to do so, that oftentimes we need to forego the immediate hit for the later reward, then I think people would be making better decisions for their long-term happiness. Dr. Gadsad, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, what a delight to talk to you. Thank you for having me. That was Evelyn Shree, psychologist and professor of marketing at Quebec University, Dr. Gadsad. He says there that we have truly been sold a dud when it comes to eudaimonia versus hedonism in today's modern society. We are all looking for short-term pleasure when in actual fact we should be looking for long-term satisfaction. His prescriptions there seem quite conservative. A family, going to a small community that you have common interests with, and also sitting in a sense that you, in fact, are lucky to be alive rather than looking over the fence and thinking about how unfortunate it is for everyone else might just make you a little happier indeed. It was interesting there at the end to talk a little bit about COVID and the way in which those rankings of the national happiness do seem to align with the amount of freedom each country had during the pandemic. Perhaps that's something we'll look into more as we go ahead. Thanks to him for coming on, to you for watching. This was Unheard.